Blog Talk Radio. Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, and I'm the host and founder of Alzheimer Speaks, which is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. We believe that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and having these everyday conversations about life with dementia, that we're going to be able to remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and help people live their lives fully and purposefully. Together, we can help everyone understand what the true needs of the disease are for both the person diagnosed and those caring for them. We can remove the fear and replace it with hope. At our core, we believe collaboration is the only way we're going to win this battle. And I know it's working because of all of your likes and clicks and sharing Alzheimer's Speaks resources. Each of you has had a huge impact. And so I really want to thank you for helping us become the number one influencer online regarding Alzheimer's, according to ShareCare and Dr. Oz. And I would ask that you continue to support us through your likes and clicks. So if you're listening to this show or if you go to our website, um, please share the information um, with your sphere of influence. If it's your LinkedIn colleagues, your Facebook friends, your Google circle, uh, your Twitter tribe, doesn't make any difference. Um, The more information we can have available to society at large, the easier it will be for people to tap into it when they need it. Now, our conversations here on Alzheimer's Speaks are really quite casual, um, and so we in, we encourage you to join the conversation, and you can do that one of two ways. You can use the chat box, and I will be monitoring that throughout the show, or you can always call into the studio and join us live at 714-364-4757. Again, that is 714-364-4757. Now, before we get started with our um, program today, I always just like to give a shout-out to some um, great organizations that I just don't think people are familiar enough um, with them. Uh, the first is... Um, a local company here in Minnesota called Healthstar Home Health. And I I just adore this company. They are really marvels in the the home health care industry and really doing some cutting-edge work um, to educate their staff and the families that they work with um, regarding dementia. And so just a, a large kudos out to Healthstar Home Health. If you happen to be in this area um, in Minnesota, you know, definitely check them out. 
Another organization uh, that I don't think people are as familiar with as they should be is Alzheimer's Disease International. Alzheimer's Disease International is the association of all associations around the world. So no matter where you're living, if you're looking for an association to tap into, you can go to ADI, Alzheimer's Association International, and not only find out who's closest to you, uh, but you're also going to get information on uh, global knowledge. So what's going on with the G7 summits? Uh, what is the latest research out there? Uh, study-wise, they just uh, wound up uh, with their um, annual conference over in Perth, which was fantastic, so there's information on that as well. Um, Another shout-out I want to give is, uh, you know, in, we always talk about a cure, but in order to get a cure, we need people to participate in a trial. And the Alzheimer's team uh, you can find on Facebook, um, just put in the subject line, Alzheimer's team, has some uh, studies available uh, for you to check out. And, you know, with that, um you know, you will be able to help reshape Alzheimer's treatment. Um, you can help with the global Alzheimer's research, and it's not going to cost you anything. There's a short survey. You can find out if you'll be able to um, fit the study programs that they have or not. Um, there's also an organization called uh, Dementia Action Alliance, and this is a fairly new organization here in the U.S., and they are doing some really neat work. And in fact, we're going to be launching a survey here pretty quick, both for um, people living with dementia and those caring for them. So look for that. I'll be posting that uh, next week uh, for participation, and that is for people in the U.S. only. Sorry, guys. Um, if you're looking for holistic ways of approach, check out the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation. Again, that's the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation. Uh, there they will talk a lot about diet and exercise and meditation. And then many people, of course, are dealing with specific types of dementia other than Alzheimer's. They might have Lewy body which does have its own national association, or they might have frontal temporal lobe uh, or um, FTD uh, dementia. And, um, you know, that also has its own national organization. Speech can also get affected by dementia. And if you go to the National Aphasia Association, and that is A-P-H-A-S-I-A-A-P-H-A-S, I A, you will find information uh, there for them um, as well that might be able to help you understand some of the speech issues that can uh, that can crop up. Um, the Purple Angel Project, close to my heart, since Alzheimer's Speaks is a national launch um, base in the U.S. for that. That is a new global symbol which covers all dementias, and it's in over 17 countries. It was started by a man, Norms McNamara, who actually is living with dementia, wanting to um, get people to have the conversation. We want this symbol as well known as the pink ribbon for breast cancer, and there's absolutely no reason it can't be. Um, you can get involved with this program for absolutely no cost. Um, and very, very little time to just help raise awareness. 
So with that, I am going to go ahead and flip over here and uh, introduce our our guest, our first guest. We have two brilliant, brilliant authors with us. Um, the first is Jean, Jean Lee, and she lives with her husband in a small town in Ohio, about 20 minutes, she says, from anything. Um, she worked full-time while her parents were ill. Both were diagnosed with dementia, and she is now retired after 22 years of teaching elementary school. Her children are married and with children of their own, so she's enjoying uh, grandmahood um, and feels that that's a great blessing, and I, I now understand that since I'm now a grandma as well. Jean is the author of a book called The Alzheimer's Daughter, which was published in January of this year, which would have been her parents' 71st wedding anniversary. Her book is personal and private and painful, um, yet it's a beautiful story revealed. Um, Like many authors, I'm sure Jean probably questioned whether she had the right to reveal this personal family story. So I want you to listen and see what you think, and we'd love to hear what you have to say. Welcome to the show, Jean. How are you? I'm good, Lori. Thanks for having me. I've admired your work for years, and I'm honored to speak with you today. Well, we're thrilled to have you with us as well. I am, your your title of your book just touches my heart because I am also an Alzheimer's daughter. And so, uh, you know, I have to ask you first off, how did you come up with the title? You know, I did not even have to contemplate what the title would be. It just was there. It it made itself. Mm-hmm. Because I, I was I, the daughter of two parents with Alzheimer's, I guess, you know, that became evident in that way, too. Yep. Yeah, I, I think the title is going to just strike a chord with so many um, who are uh, daughters and sons. Um, in this, can you tell us a little bit about the dual diagnosis of both parents? I mean, that you know, most of us, you know, are dealing with one, but to deal with both parents, I, I can't even imagine. Well, my parents had lived physically healthy lives until the age of 83. They were on very few medicines, and at age 83, my sister and I started noticing obvious things that were not right in their thinking process, in their actions, and we became concerned. Um, I was the local hometown daughter. I lived a mile from my parents, and my sister lived in Florida a thousand miles away. Um, However, she had always visited often and she was very close to our parents. So it was absolutely logical when I saw these things that I would communicate them to her. She encouraged me then to begin a journal of oddities, what was happening, so that when I spoke with her by phone, I could recall dates and frequencies of things rather than just saying uh, these odd things have been happening. Starting that journal was a painful thing for me because I felt like I was tattling on them, uh, Mm -hmm. telling tales about the people who loved me the most who would have sacrificed anything for me. 
and I actually hid the journal so no one would find it. It was just my own communication with my sister. That journal became pivotal in their diagnosis three years later when they were 86. Um, In the meantime, my mom had broken some bones and my dad had absolutely no idea how to care for her. Uh, She had always been the domestic person taking care of everyone else. He was actually still working in uh, a business that he had created and molded for 60 years. And, you know, even with her broken bone, he would just go to work and leave her and really had no idea how to fix a sandwich for her or do the laundry or anything. Um, We tried having a caregiver at home, and they saw that as an invasion of their privacy So in that three-year period between age 83 and 86 and the diagnosis, um, we knew we had to get them somewhere for their own safety. We had to get Dad off the road. Um, That was, I sound like I'm glossing over that, but it was very difficult to get them to agree to go somewhere, uh, a senior community for their care. And I think that might be what's odd about this story. Um, Usually a husband would take care of a wife or a wife would take care of a husband or a child might take care of a parent. They were both so lost. And neither of them ever said, there was never a point that my mom said, he's doing something odd. Or there was never a point that my dad said, I'm worried about her. They just floated off into this together. Um, at at the point of their diagnosis and thereafter, we moved them three consecutive times to actually finally get them to a secure memory unit, which was just tragic for us, for any child to have to lock their parents in a facility. is devastating. Uh, you feel as though you're putting them in prison and they've committed no crime. Um, So that was the process of the dual diagnosis, taking them both um, simultaneous decline hand in hand, which in the end may have been a blessing for them because they were such a connected couple. They loved each other deeply until my mother's last breath. And so they didn't have to suffer uh, seeing each other decline. It may have been such a blessing for them. Well, you know, you talk about, um, you know, maybe glossing over, you know, the placement. And that is difficult stuff. And I think every family struggles so much with that. Um, I remember with, with my parents, you know, we had an issue where it was like, and we had no idea how unsafe they were um, over the winter up at the cabin. And then a story came out in August. Um, that was like, oh my gosh, they cannot spend another another winter up at the cabin. <laughs> this is not. This is right. we're going to have two little frozen, you know, snowmen out there, and um, you know they they really battled that, losing that independence, and you know worried about becoming a burden, and you know all those things that are are so normal, you know, because none of us want to lose our independence, none of us want to become a burden, none of us want to 
give up. And so I know for myself, I ended up putting my folks on a waiting list for a building being built, and I just never told them. Um, but yes. my, my gut my gut just said I needed to do that, and so I did. And And then it was kind of strange that this situation occurred, and they were like, well, where are we going to go? And I'm like, you know what, two blocks from my house. They're building a brand-new place. Let's just go walk through it. So we actually walked through it while it was under construction, and my dad I finally agreed that you know well we'll cut we'll live here in the winter time only but we'll still go up to the lake and and um, uh-huh. but I mean but it was such a fine dance. My mom was to yes. the point where she because um, my dad had brain cancer, my mom had dementia. Where my mom was you know whatever would whatever would make make us all happy, she was fine to do. You know she really uh-huh. didn't didn't have an opinion which made it much easier but but that is something i hear families struggle with so so much and there's no there's no easy answer i mean there's no magic yeah. bullet to just fix that and it really is a process that that each family has to go through on their own um with that um is there any recommendations you would have for a family in terms of addressing a potential move you know, I, I think for me, the journal was key um, because what's happening with your parent or your partner who has Alzheimer's or dementia feels so odd. And you walk away from those situations thinking, did I really see that or am I imagining that? Just how dangerous is this? Um, and so writing it down, making it concrete uh, made it something that my sister and I had to address. In my case, living in such a small town, 20 minutes from anything, there was no local option for us. And mm-hmm. the places that I visited were 30 minutes away. And so uh-huh. that took them completely out of their community, which was very important to them. Their community was so important. They were business owners. They were very active in the church. And so that made the pulling of them out of their own home even more devastating. So I don't I don't know. I mean, as, as you read Alzheimer's Daughter and read through the journal part of it, separately mom or dad would agree to move seven different times and then renege because we were on that same waiting list. And until an apartment came open, we had to, you know, keep talking about uh, the positives of going. There will be so much there for you to do. You won't have to drive. Your meals will be fixed. And they'd be, okay, we'll go. But then all of a sudden, no, we're not going. We're not leaving our home. So it was <laughs> agonizing for sure. <laughs> yeah, that and, and that is so common, that, that flip-flopping you know, where they kind of give in and then all of a sudden, no way, <laughs> not happening. Yeah. And you and you just kind of go, what happened? You know, because you're, yeah. you're, not, you're not prepared for that. And then you're starting from scratch all over again. And it's, you know, as, as a loved one, it's so exhausting because these hurdles are so massive. And, and we have such fear of what will happen if we, if, if they don't get the proper care. Um, and that is one of the things that I, I've learned um, even through my years in real estate when I would help families was that we need to talk about why this move is important for family. Because I found, um, and again, when you're dealing with someone with dementia, it doesn't always work, but 
I found that if um, if people knew the rationale behind it, that it was really going to allow their families to sleep better um, at night and to um, feel that they were safe, um, the the battle lessened, you know, um, and they they started they could a, a lot of times start seeing it from the other side. But I, I think we have to have conversations about these moves way ahead of time. Um, so that it really is still about living life well instead of this digression of life, which is what it's viewed as. And I, I think all stages of life should be lived well. So I, I think that that's just something personally that that we need to change. Um, what what exactly prompted you to to say, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna write this book? What did, was there a specific um, instance? Um, that you thought, you know, I'm going to take, you know, what what was kind of private between my sister and I and, and, and go public with this? Yes, there was. Um, my mother died in 2010, and my mom and dad, even within the lost memory care unit, had shared a room. Um, I don't know that they had ever slept apart in their marriage until two days before mom's death when she was moved to hospice. So they were a very close couple. Yet one week after mom's passing, I was sitting with dad outside that secure memory care unit in front of a pretty fireplace visiting with him one week after her death. And I came to understand he had no memory of her or their 67 years of marriage. Nothing. It was as mm-hmm. though it hadn't happened. And at that point, I, I had shared this experience of dual diagnosis with a handful of my coworkers. Um, people I, I knew were maybe going through a similar situation with a parent. And they said, Jean, both parents, I mean, you should write a book about this. And I, at that point, I thought, I'm a teacher. I write lesson plans, and I'm just trying to survive and stay afloat here. It was the last thing from my mind. But sitting with my dad, realizing he could not remember my mom one week later, I thought this dual diagnosis, simultaneous decline, may be something to share with other people. I didn't know that anything like that, whether it had been written about, before, but I had searched and read everything I could find just to help me through the experience. Um, Didn't find anything like that. And I thought, it has to be happening. There have to be other people who have had a mother and a father both diagnosed. And sharing that could help people in some way. Mm -hmm. So essentially, Lori, I wrote what I needed to read um, much of I, I'd read 500 books deep on Amazon, you know, just trying. And as soon as I devoured one book, I'd read the next. Much of what I read was written um, with some kind of an underlying vendetta, like, you know, my brother Bob didn't help, you know, or um, my, <laughs> I'm suffering this anguish because that person with Alzheimer's or or dementia is treating me so badly and I can't take it. And I know that there are are reasons that people need to vent that kind of thing. But it was not helpful to me to read 
that negativity. I needed to be lifted up and understand how people came through it and survived it. So I wrote what I needed to read, honestly. Well, I I love that because I, I do think that there is so much, you know, sadness out there and, and depression and angst um, and fear regarding this disease. And, I mean, I say this probably every single show. You know, my mom's disease was the biggest gift I'll probably ever receive in my life. Uh-huh. In a very, in a very yes. strange package, I never would have imagined. Um, but <laughs> life-changing on many, many levels. And, um, you know, has enriched my life. And hopefully I'm passing that on to enrich others. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing, too, was... Um, you know, it, but but it's so weird what, to me when it comes to this disease because all of a sudden I, I think so many people look and go, my life was perfect, but yet before the disease it sure as heck wasn't. But now they're comparing it yeah. to what was and all they're missing yeah. out on and that everything was smooth and nobody's life is smooth and perfect and there's there's obstacles. This one just happens to have a name, dementia. You know, sometimes it's. <laughs> divorce, sometimes it's, you know, addiction, sometimes it's, I mean, it can be all kinds of things that crop up in people's life, loss of a job, um, and and this one is just another stage, another journey, and, but for some reason, it's it's become acceptable to, um, on many levels for a long, long time, um, to, to, you know, kind of go down the rabbit hole with it. And I, I really mm-hmm. think it's time, and there's a point. I mean, everybody goes down the rabbit hole, don't get me wrong. Um, but but there, you know, it, it's time for us to step out of that and understand this is another phase of life, one that we have to learn how to deal with, just how we've dealt with, you know, cancer and heart disease and diabetes and AIDS and, you know, divorce and addiction and all of those things, you know, things have come into play to help us survive and thrive as humans and I think your I think your book um you know as difficult as it is to kind of expose the the truth of this disease there's you know there's all sides to it there's all different kinds of emotion I would imagine that you felt all different types of emotion throughout this throughout this journey um I think that's normal would you would you agree with that statement Absolutely. Um, I guess, Lori, in response to what you're saying about our life prior to mm-hmm. um, the diagnosis, I, I'm so thankful for the way I was raised because my mom and dad were such positive people. Um, they loved each other deeply. They they were people who really did count their blessings I was very ill as a child. As a two-year-old, I nearly died of meningitis. And every day of my life from that point on, I was raised with the attitude that you have been given one more day that was Mm -hmm. not scheduled in your life. Don't ever pout. If you can stand up, if you can get up in the morning and breathe on your own and stand on your own two feet, be thankful for it. Um, And that carried them through some really awful times at the end, and it carried me through, too. It made me look for the blessings in what was awful. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's it it is life changing when um, when a critical illness hits like that. Um, I, I look at that. My my daughter had meningitis when she was ten months old, and we almost lost uh-huh. her. And yeah. and I remember and I remember thinking how. How can you be so attached? How can you see so much growth in in a ten month old that most people, you know, you know, think that well, it's just a baby, you know, and it's just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, yeah. and and so um, it is. I mean, we should all live our life um, feeling blessed that we have another day, another moment in in time. Can you tell us a little bit about? Um, in your book, you share your parents' love letters. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you ran across those and, and how that impacted you? Well, uh, my sister and I had seen a hoarding situation happening in our parents' home. So moving them um, was, oh my, you know, just going through everything from a moldy basement to overstuffed closets and cluttered living areas. And every night after work, I'd go and clean a little more. Um, There was an extra bedroom that mom did not let anyone in um, very often. And when I started on that room, I found at the bottom of a closet a gold cardboard box with cardboard covered with gold foil, had Hallmark on it. So it's it's a box that cards would have come in. And I opened the top, and I saw all of these old, old, I could tell they were letters, you know, from the uh, faded envelopes, stacked in there, just like little, little files in a file cabinet, a mini file cabinet. And I pulled them out, and I realized they were my mom and dad's wartime love letters. Um, that, and at that point, I took a couple out, peeked at them, and I thought, no, these are private. I can't read these. They, they weren't meant for my eyes. They were meant for only each other. So I put the lid back on the box, and wherever we moved mom and dad, we moved that box of letters. Um, mm-hmm. A year after my mom died, my father died, and in cleaning out his the very last things from that room, we brought this box home. And after his funeral, my sister and I actually stood over the trash can with this box ready to dump it out, still feeling like we do not have the right to look at these letters. We really wouldn't want someone looking at letters like that that we had written. Mm-hmm. So, and then at the very last moment, we said, well, let's just take a peek. Uh-huh. And so we started looking through them, and they were beautiful. We put them in chronological order, and um, they're very factual, almost like a couple might text back and forth to one another. You know, in today's age, I, I got a haircut today, or I spent $2.38 on this or that. Um but yet written with this underlying heat and passion for each other, but yet in such a subtle way. And each letter probably three terms of endearment, like sweetheart, honey, darling. And we decided, well, we've got to keep these. 
And then in writing Alzheimer's Daughter, I thought, you know, one of these letters could begin each chapter and show their budding love and devotion for one another, you know, written right when they were dating, uh, through when they were married, and then finally when mom joins dad at the base uh, where he is stationed. Um, And their writing actually becomes, I believe, the most beautiful part of the manuscript. Their voice is contrasted to what is happening in their decline. Uh-huh. Wow. That I that had to have been just something to run across those. I can't imagine even just the emotions that I would have felt as a as a it, daughter. It was, yeah. It was just one of those times that like everything just goes out of you. You know, like, oh my gosh, look what I found. And yet these are so private. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well that's very, very neat. Um, is there is there a favorite kind of love letter that kind of stood out to you that just um, just kind of oh captures my gosh. Your, your folks? They were all so sweet. I mean, they start, um, my mom and dad knew one another in high school. They graduated in the same class, but they never dated. Um, they actually dated a brother and a sister. And my dad would always tell about uh, they went to an amusement park on a double date. My my mother was the brother, and my dad was the sister. And, um, and the brother and sister didn't want to ride the roller coaster. My dad called it a roller coaster. He said, so I got your mom to ride the roller coaster with me. And there was a dark tunnel at the end of the roller coaster. And he said, I snuck a kiss at the end of the roller coaster. That's how, <laughs> that's how the relationship came to be. And he said, we went back very, you know, guilty looking to our dates, you know, after that. But the first, the very first love letter, Lori, is be, uh, she has, he's apparently gone to the surface and she hasn't told him how she really felt. It's very short. Could I read it to you? Sure, sure. Okay. It's November 11th, 1941. Dear Ed, I don't know why, but it seems so much easier to tell you in writing how much you mean to me. You know there isn't anything I wouldn't do for you. In these uncertain times, everyone needs someone to live for, to dream about. Without this, we're lost. Ed, I love you with all my heart, and I consider it an honor if you would allow me to wait for you until the war is over. Why couldn't I have realized and told you about my feelings in person before you left for the Army? I am so very sure now. Lovingly, Ibby. Wow. Very, very (laughs) Very yeah. neat. And you just don't hear of people writing love letters the way they used to. Um right. you know, you know, communication has just changed changed so much. Can you talk about um some of the positive or little silver linings that you found in in the process of caring for your folks? Lori, they were always very positive attitude people and even when they couldn't remember me or their own names. 
they just kept this positive mantra going. The words that they had always said all of their lives, we're so lucky, we're so happy. It just kept replaying like a, a record that had a ding in it, you know, that kept going back to that. And even after my mom died, my dad continued to use that plural pronoun, we're so lucky, we're so happy. Um, they always said, live with an attitude of gratitude. And simple, simple things brought them joy, like a 99-cent Sunday from McDonald's brought them so much joy. I, I would take one to them, and they'd say, this is the best day of my life. You know, just to be eating a little ice cream sundae. Um, so searching for that kind of thing, even though there was so much negativity in what was happening in their decline, searching for those positive things uh, kept me afloat. Uh, mm-hmm. And I believe, Lori, it was because of the way I was raised that the faith that kept them going their entire lives, sustained them, if not heightened, to the end. And, Lori, as their memories, as they lost their memories, it was as though their faith increased. Um, They became closer to the eternal. And my dad, after my mom passed, in that year that I'd go to see him, he'd look out the window and he'd wave to the clouds and say, I'll be there soon. And it was just, it was so, these were awe-inspiring moments for me in the midst of emergency room trips and broken bones. And it, it was amazing in the way that they had always lived. Wow. Very, very, <laughs> very neat. Now, have you... Um, as far as your family goes, uh, can you talk at all about um, maybe some silver linings for others at all? Or um, I think we've all felt, you know, we, we just all feel incredibly blessed by the way that we were raised. My sister and I try to keep that positive attitude going. I really hope, Lori, that Alzheimer's daughter becomes a blessing to people who read it. And, um, you know, I I was so hesitant to reveal such a private story. Um, And honestly, the idea of, you know, there have been people who have asked me, did you find peace in the writing of it? And at the time I thought I did, but I think what was really happening when I wrote it was I was establishing my daily connection to them. And it was to my parents. And it was Mm -hmm. though I was writing about this is what happened to you and this is what I had to do as a result. So even though I felt like I was gaining peace and positivity through that, it was still such a question mark, should I publish it? But Mm -hmm. it really has been in the reaction of other people, the reviews that I've gotten from people I've never met, uh, from meeting you, Lori. um, That's the true measure of that blessing and positive influence 
going on because people have appreciated the work and said that it it is helping them through a rough time. So that's how I hope it's being passed on. <laughs> yeah, I well, I surely would I surely would think so. Um, you know, the book's only been out there really a short time. Um, and it sounds like you're just getting a, a great response, which is is wonderful, absolutely wonderful to to hear. Um, in terms of you know your your parents, um, I'm just wondering what what do you think their thoughts are about the book? You know, I I just as I was writing it, I was so questioning that because. You know, we lived in a small town. My parents were public people in that small little town, yet very private. And there were things you could speak about and things you didn't speak about. And I wondered, in their minds, would this be something I shouldn't speak about? And again, I didn't have peace about that until I started gaining positive feedback from others. And I think now, and actually, Lori, as we were about to begin this interview, I I have my book right here beside me, and I just laid my hands on it, uh, almost as though I was holding hands with them as I'm talking to you, um, hoping that this story, even though it's personal, is changing lives and helping others and telling the world their love story in addition, the the love which took them through this disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it's very interesting. What kind of response have you gotten from your family? Because I, I know sometimes families have a really tough time with um, their family story being told. Did you, did you get any pushback at all? Or, or, or not, your... not really pushback, but I would say I, I had to go forward with it um, on my own and with questions. And I I think um, there were people in my family who also had questions because this was a private journey. And I will tell you what really spurred me forward um, was in talking to my own son about writing this and having him read a draft of it. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, Mom, would you be proud of me if I wrote a book? And I said, absolutely. And he said, would you be proud of me if I wrote a book about your Alzheimer's? And I said, absolutely. So that that's what kept carrying me through. And no mm-hmm. one really did give me push, pushback, but at the same time, you know, we changed names for privacy and that kind of thing. Uh, even though the events and the timeline in this story are accurate, you know, of course, it's a memoir is creative nonfiction. So if my parents were to have written the book, it would be written with a different tone. I'm sure they'd be saying, our daughters are trying to get us to move out of our home and <laughs> and, um, you know that kind of thing, but um, it's it's pretty truthfully told, mm-hmm. and 
no, no can you there. <laughs> you know, one thing that um we didn't really mention I um anyways, I don't think we did. Um can you tell us a, a approximate age of your parents when each was diagnosed? Yes, they were diagnosed at age 86 and we started to have questions about their clarity at 83. All seemed very well with them until the age of 80. And then it was just slight little incrementally uh, things that we questioned until age 83 where I started to keep the journal. And they died. Mom died at 89 and Dad died at 90. Okay. Okay. Now, because both of your parents um, had dementia, do you think about (laughs) about it for yourself i know initially you know with my mom my mom started having memory problems in her mid-50s and i didn't you know i did i really wasn't concerned about it i really wasn't going to focus on it now i'm going to be 56 and you know i'm seeing some changes and i don't know if they're you know dementia related or not i know that i go in and get um, screened every year um, but I know the thought crosses my mind more. Does it yours? Certainly. And um, my family doctor, he actually has doctored four generations of my family, so he knows us and our inner workings pretty well. And a few years ago I said to him, gosh, you know, both of my parents were diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Should I be worried? And he said, Jean, really, they were not diagnosed until they were over 80 years old. Your parents lived a long life. He he said, if all of us had parents who lived that long, we'd know we had a much higher risk of Alzheimer's and dementia because, yep. you know, people would have developed it by then. But they may have died earlier before they developed uh, those things. So that reassured me greatly. He said, take your fish oil every day. Uh So I put it to rest that way, that if I can live till age 80 with clarity, how blessed will I be? And if something happens, then it does. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, of course, early onset is such a different ball game. And, um, you know, so painful to think about. But I just try to live each day with joy and happiness. So yeah, well, and I think that that's the best uh, the best way. I mean, we can worry about all kinds of stuff that never ever happens. And um, yes. you know, when when we focus in the in the future of of the what might happen, and you know, we we lose we lose today. You know, yes. and. Um, we just get sucked down that rabbit hole. So I think it's, I think it's important to be conscious. And if things really start interfering with life, then you know, go ahead and, and go get checked, and you know, get your yearly baselines if if that's what you're comfortable with. I know people always ask me, you know, are, are you going to go in and and um, get checked to see if you have the gene, or you know, go in mm-hmm. for a PET scan? And I just say, no, not at this point. Um, mm-hmm. Not at this. I'm not. I'm not going to. Um, and I don't know if you've had any thought um, to doing that at all or not. My guess is not. From from. I absolutely days. agree with you. I I don't think I will have anything like that done because it would 
if there was something out there possibly looming, it would steal a piece of my joy every day, you know. <laughs> and so I, I would just rather live in joy every day. And if it happens, it happens. So it, try to yeah. stay healthy in the meantime. You know, Lori, something about that idea of health, my mom and dad, even as connected as they were, were very different people. Um, my dad did not like sweets. He never gained weight in his life. He was mentally active um, in his job. Um, he was not a person that you would have thought of getting Alzheimer's disease. My mom, on the other hand, had her sweet tooth. Um, you know, we were a meat and potatoes family growing up and Always there was a homemade dessert, too, candy bars around. Um, she was not nearly as physically active as my dad, nor as mentally active as he was. She had high cholesterol. He had high blood pressure. But they were very different physical profiles and health profiles, yet it happened to both of them. And, um, you know, I can't help but wonder they were so connected as a couple if one of them just followed the other into that, you know, and and just let it happen to them. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it's just so interesting the way it happened simultaneously and the decline happened hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting thought. Um definitely to to think, you know, how how does that all transpire? You know, what's you know, what's the what's the meaning? How does it happen and um you know, would one follow the other? I mean, I I think of my folks, you know, my dad had brain cancer, my mom had dementia, and at the end um my mom chose to move into the nursing home to be by him and you know the nursing home of course wanted them to be in the same room and i said no she doesn't have to watch him die we'll lose them both you know mm-hmm. i mean because they they were just two peas in a pod so you know is that is that possible to be um almost spiritually invited into the world of dementia um so that you're still That's together you know question yes yeah. Very, very, um, very interesting um, thought, Um, really interesting thought in terms of that. I I think people don't think twice about, um, you know, the whole comment of, well, you know, we lost mom right after dad or, you know, they just couldn't live without one another. And, you know, this is another alternative. The the last guest I had on the radio, um, Maggie Littoral, has a book called The Gift, you know, of Alzheimer's and and she talks about how her mom talked to her about this was really a spiritual journey for her to lose all the stuff that got filled in her head and kind of get back to basics again and live in a different realm and um you know not everyone will believe that or um but it's but it's a very interesting very interesting read um and I I think uh you know something to something to make us think about. I, I think our minds are very full. And, you know, there's been a lot of uh, judgment and um, kind of black and white, you know, boxes um, placed in our life. And, and Alzheimer's is very gray, you know, on a, on a lot of levels. Yeah. 
it can be, um, you know, there's the moments, and I don't know if you, if your parents had this kind of the moments of paranoia, um, but there's that, the, you know, then there's that point. I know with my mom, I refer to it where the the ego just left the building, and she was just very peaceful, you know, mm. and, and stuff that used to matter to her just didn't. Um, it was wasn't about fitting in. It wasn't about looking perfect anymore. It was really about this this peacefulness um, within her. Did did you see that with your with either of your parents? Yes, I would say so. Yes, um, gosh, Lori. I mean, as as their lives ended, you know. The, the last few days of their lives in hospice care, uh, there was just such beauty in that. Um, and, yes, the letting go of everything. When my mom was moved to hospice care, um, fortunately my sister was able to get back in time for both of our parents passing, which, you know, we feel was a great blessing that we were both mm-hmm. able to be there. Um, but we decided to have mom moved out of the room that they shared together and take her to the hospice wing. And dad really, I think he he didn't realize that she was near death. He thought she was just sleeping. Um, We had her moved, and she just fought it with everything she had in her. I know she was having words with God don't take me away from this man. I am not ready to leave him yet. And they sedated and sedated and sedated her to get her to calm down. Mm-hmm. And um, they said to my sister and I, y- you need to leave her now for a while. She has some coming to terms to do with this. And so, yes, I, you know, I think at that point, definitely, Everything left her, and she became very peaceful. And the actual mm-hmm. passing of her was like a woman giving birth to a child. She gave birth to her soul. It was really something. And, mm-hmm. you know, my dad that next year remained very peaceful until the very end, and he suffered from some UTIs and um, a broken shoulder and pneumonia. And at that point, due to pain, he became agitated, which is the only time I've ever seen him agitated in his life. But once they got those things under control, you know, he was very peaceful. And just, it was interesting. My sister and I had always known him as such a hardworking man. Mom had raised the children. Um, and so coming to know him through the Alzheimer's process was really coming to know him um, because he hadn't been around a lot, you know, when we were growing up. He, I mean, he'd always been home every night, but he worked long hours and that kind of thing. So was coming to know him almost as a young boy as he went back uh, in his life, you know, and would ask about his mother and father. And mm-hmm. uh, so isn't it, that, it's isn't that neat. a neat, neat time, though, to be able, I mean, I remember seeing my mom 
um, kind of has this young child too, and, and to be able to see her playful or to learn new stories or just just things you don't know about their childhood. Um, yes, and how they were, and I just thought, gosh, what a what a gift that is. You know, some some sure. families, most families, never never get a peek um, into that, and I, I just thought that was really very neat um, to be able to learn about their relationships and their likes and dislikes or um, even one time I remember my mom just coloring with my daughter and I don't know who was having more fun you know and they were both (laughs) proud they were both just as proud of their pictures you know when they were through and it was but it was just so sweet so innocent and so authentic you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't an adult just appeasing a child like, okay, it was just, I mean, she was truly just there playing with my daughter. And um, and I just, I, I, I'll, I'll, I can still see them sitting at the table and just this, this <laughs> contentment and joy. And it was just so beautiful. So beautiful. Well, I can't believe our hour has blown by already. It just, uh, oh, time Time goes by so quickly. I really encourage people to to um, pick up this book, The Alzheimer's Daughter, a memoir by Jean Lee. And you can uh, contact Jean. Uh, she does have a Twitter account, uh, Jean, and that's uh, J-E-A-N Lee, L-E-E 18 on Twitter. Um, or you can um, go to her uh, Alzheimer's Daughter's blog which is um, jeanlee.blogspot.com. And, Lori, um, that, that, that blog, Lori, it, it, the, the address is Jean L. Lee. There, it's kind of funny. There's an extra L in there. Oh, you're right. You're right. Thank you so much for pointing that out. Jean L. Lee. Okay. And then you also have a Facebook page. Um, So if they're on Facebook, they can just put in Alzheimer's Daughter, um, and they will go to that. And then do you want to give people your email address as well? Yes, absolutely. It's Jean, J-E-A-N, at alzheimersdaughter.com. Wonderful. Any last uh, comment or tip that you want to give folks out there before uh, before we go into our mid-program break? You know, Lori, there was one thing that I was thinking of here in closing, and it was about the people who worked with my parents and took care of them at the facilities in which they lived. I mean, the staff, They do incredibly hard work, and I really, as I saw this spiritual part of my mom and dad uh, heighten as their memories diminished, I felt as though there was a cloud of angels surrounding them just waiting to help them get to the other side, and I believe that the caregivers in facilities, they work within that cloud of angels, and um, we owe them so much for good care. Agree, agree. Um, it, you know, we, we we none of us can do this alone, and so, you know, it, it's time for us to kind of face those facts that we need each other and everybody plays such a critical role 
um in in this journey of dementia and and we need to be we need to really be grateful and appreciative for one another and um what everybody what everyone brings to the table for this well jean i I just thank you so much for being with us today. It truly was a pleasure uh to have you on the show and we wish you great success um with your with thank your you book and I know it will help many. So you have a you have a great day, and um, you know keep us Thank posted you so on much how things are going. Okay. Okay. Bye now. Bye bye. Um, before I introduce our second guest, um, I'm just going to go over some mid-program highlights. Uh, our last radio show uh, was with uh, Maggie Latero, uh the writer and therapist and teacher um, who kind of has worked in holistic care for over 30 years. Uh, she went on a journey with her own mom with dementia, and her book is called The Gift of Alzheimer's, New Insights into Potential um, When It Comes to Alzheimer's and Its Care. And uh, she's got some wonderful, wonderful stories in there. And, you know, the the title of the show is Can Dementia Really Be a Gift, Um, which I I definitely... um, I definitely am a believer. Our next show is going to have uh, Carolyn Rosenblatt, and she's the author of The Family Guide to Aging Parents. And we're going to be talking about financial issues when it comes to Alzheimer's disease and um, how how to work with people who are losing their decision-making um, capabilities. And then on June 9th, we are going to have the founder of the ABC Approach to Alzheimer's, Awareness and Care Through the Arts. And we are also going to have a couple of authors, Vicki Rupert and Anne um, Hedenberg of Singing in the Rain. And they have to say a really interesting story. Um, both are women uh, caring for spouses with dementia and how they met. This afternoon, um, we are, we are um, having our dementia chats. Uh, coming up at 3 p.m. Eastern Time today. So we'd love for you to follow us um, with that and and, um, come and be part. That'll be on the blog and and so forth. And then there was just one article that I wrote this last uh, week called uh, Memorial Day Weekend Thoughts of Loss and Legacy. And, you know, for me, this has just been a really personal journey, as death is with everybody. Um, You know, my mom's been gone a little over a year. My dad, since uh, 2001, which is just so hard to believe. And what I found as I was sitting up at their home at the lake, um, you know what did memorial weekend really mean to me and i know that it's it's for our our service men and women and i don't mean to detract that but for me um i kind of broke out the letters and the word and the m um well i'll just say the the phrase that came from memorial day magnificent and everlasting moments officially remarkable integrated and life affirming to our hearts legacies of love delicious adventures which are ours to keep forever and that's that's really what it means to me um we'd love to hear what memorial um 
day means to each of you as well. I am going to go ahead and um, introduce our next guest here. Very excited to have him back with us. We've got Dr. Richard L. Morgan, and he is a retired hospice chaplain and presently works as a volunteer in hospice. He has written 18 books, including Meditations, for uh, the grieving, uh, dear brothers, letters facing death and at the edge of life, conversations when death is near. He's an ab- active, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, an active advocate for persons with dementia and um, and the people who care for them. He facilitates grief groups and um, Alzheimer's support groups. So, welcome, Richard. How are you doing Thank today? You. I'm doing fine. I'm on your well, program, good. Lori. Good. Well, good. We're we're excited to have you back with Thank us. Thank you. Um, now you're located out in Pennsylvania, correct? Yes, right. Not far from what? Pittsburgh. Okay. Okay. Well, today we are going to talk um, kind of about death and dying and living. Right. You know, co- conversations um, when when we're near death and at the edge. Edge of right. life, and I, I just love that phrase at the edge of life because it is just such right. a fragile state. So, why is the conversation about death and dying um, something that we all need to have? Why do you feel strongly about that? Well, I, I feel strongly uh, for many, many reasons, but we live in a culture, unfortunately, that still is somewhat death denying. Uh, you know, as Woody, Allen, as Woody Allen once said, "I don't mind dying, but I want—I don't want to be there when it happens." And, <laughs> and a lot of people, yeah, I mean, uh, there are a lot of people who put this off. Uh, the end of life is not the time to talk about it. The time to talk about it is now, and that's particularly true with Alzheimer's. Yep. And and you know I find that too. People push this off, uh, yeah. you know, because oh, yeah. it's so fear based, and right. yet everybody everybody wants to live life well. Well, in order to live life well, you have to plan for all right. stages. And, and death death is a stage. Yeah. You sure. Know? You know, and as Plato was asked when he was near his deathbed, uh, "What is the greatest lesson of life?" and he said, "Practice dying." And by that, obviously, he meant when you do that, then each day becomes special and life has its priorities. So Mm -hmm. I'm very passionate about this, not just only because of my work with Alzheimer's, but even with my work with hospice with people who don't have Alzheimer's. And I Mm -hmm. see it so often happening that they don't make these plans until it's too late. And furthermore... Uh, we, we face a culture that has medicalized death. You know, earlier times, people died at home, a natural death surrounded by their family or friends. Mm-hmm. And now a lot of people die in hospitals or nursing homes out of sight, which I think is unfortunate. So we have a real mission here to, to, to recreate death as a natural part of our lives. Well, that's a, that's interesting. Um, mm-hmm. I, I guess I never even thought of how much it, the process has changed, yes. and, it, and it really, really has. That's a, yes. that's a huge, huge point. Yeah. Um, why do you think people are so so scared? You know. Well, it's you know I understand. I mean, it's it's a scary subject. Uh, we have four adult children and their spouses. 
And even when we tried to talk to them about it, they didn't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, you think we're going to live for, I'm going to live forever. You know, this is a reality. And still, the, the, there's some resistance. And I think a lot of it is because the unknown, the fear of the unknown, and also fear of death itself. And then, you know, trying to relate this to people with Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia is also a passion of mine because caregivers realize this is a terminal disease, okay? Mm-hmm. They're not going to get well. Although they may live a long time, uh, still they're not going to get well. So as one lady put it to me so so clearly, she said, it's like looking at a photograph of my husband that's getting fader, it's fading away until finally there's no picture left. So she was experiencing what I call death in slow motion as she was mm-hmm. dealing with a husband with Alzheimer's. Okay. Yeah, okay. and I, I think I think so many of our listeners can um can relate to that. Sure. Um that change, that loss. Um oh, yeah. and, and and the grief is definitely something that needs to be needs to be dealt with. Um right. can you tell us um Maybe a little bit. Why? Why did you choose to write a short book? Um, you know, at the edge of life. Okay. Well, uh, I have worked formerly as a hospice chaplain, and I I confess at that time, you know, I, I had a lot to learn about being with the dying, and now I'm a hospice volunteer where I live in this retirement community, and it seemed to me that there is a conspiracy of silence sometimes. Silence is, is great when silence is needed. But there also is a conspiracy of silence that we don't know what to do, we don't know what to say when someone is dying. So the major reason I wrote the book was, first of all, to help people engage in conversation with a loved one, whether they have Alzheimer's and can converse or someone else who doesn't have Alzheimer's. And then also to help them make plans now, not only for themselves, but for their loved one, because I'm convinced that people in the early stages of Alzheimer's can still make plans for their death. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've done that with people with early stages of Alzheimer's. So they're probably that's the two major reasons. I wrote this very small book, it's only 72 pages. Um, and, you know, Laurie, it's interesting that one of my friends is a hospice chaplain, and he has used the book with training hospice staff and volunteers. So I wrote a leader's guide for him, which I can share with anybody who uses the book. And he found that extremely helpful. I mean, the whole process of taking those people through these stages of facing death themselves. And then what, how, do you, how do you converse with someone? How do you deal with someone who's dying? And, of course, this is a different ballgame for people with, you know, middle or late stages of Alzheimer's. It's, mm-hmm. it's a lot different. And I, I found very very little written about it. So that's why I was inspired to write this short book. And by the way, it's probably my last book. <laughs> <laughs> that sort well, of, I, I mean, that sort of uh, sounds final, but I mean it. Uh, my, my publisher is going to print on demand and to virtual publishing, which is fine. But I'm, I'm 86 years old, and uh, I go back to the old-fashioned way of writing for publishing. Uh-huh. But this little book has had an amazing reception, believe me. It amazes me, not just by groups, but by individuals. And I think it is because it's a subject that we know very little about. We don't know what to do. Yeah, 
Yeah, and there and again, there's so much there's so much fear wrapped in it because that's kind oh, of yeah. how we. I mean, that's that's how you know we get money. That's how we do so many different right. things. That's how we motivate people. Typically, that's is right. is is through through fear. I, I like that it's a, a short book too because I think. You know, the topic itself could be so overwhelming, and if someone saw a big old book, they just may not pick it up. Where, where a small, where a smaller book, they're like, okay, well, you know, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe I can. Yeah, pick maybe this someday up. we'll talk about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. What, that's what my adult children said. Uh, <laughs> and you know, uh, I was a distant caregiver for a mother who had vascular dementia, who died at 66, and my sister also had vascular dementia. She lived a little longer. And I was distant, unfortunately, from them. My visits were very sporadic. But I stayed in constant contact with my sister, who's a psychiatric nurse, who was the primary caregiver for my mother, and my brother-in-law, who was the primary caregiver for my sister. And we had some open conversations about facing death. And I guess that's another reason the book sort of emerged. Okay. Um, now, in the book, can you can you give a couple of tips that you give people in terms of having conversation? Yeah. The first first thing I would say is be very cautious what you say about death to a person with Alzheimer's who still has some cognitive ability. And I'll give you two examples real quick. Every day, a husband would visit his dear wife in a in a memory care unit, and she had Alzheimer's. Well, one day he had a heart attack and died at work, and the nurse told her, your husband died, and she went into shock and disorientation, and then she forgot. So the next day she went looking for her husband, and the nurse, not realizing what was going on, said, well, he had a heart attack and died. She went through that kind of shock and disorientation three times. Can you imagine mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. So finally, the charged nurse saw what was happening and said, dear, you're... Your husband, you see your husband someday, soon. Now let's go watch television and I diverted her attention, and she forgot completely about her husband's death. And then I heard I had a woman tell me that that uh, she would never accept her husband's death when he died. So they took her to the funeral, and they took her to the to the to the burial site. And they said, surely, as she saw the casket, she would realize that's her husband who had died. But she asked, as they left the cemetery, where is Dave? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a wise family member said, well, Dave's not here now, but you will see him again, which I thought was a very therapeutic answer. Mm-hmm. I mean, she went right, I mean, she didn't, you know, she didn't try to argue with her or uh, continue her grief. So my first point is be very cautious when there is conversation, what you say. You have to be mm-hmm. very careful because... Yeah. Their concept is obviously still in the past. And that's the other thing is, I heard this in the previous uh, interview you had uh, with the woman who who wrote the book, The Alzheimer's Daughter, that often they live in the past, even when they're dying. And often people have told me while they were dying, someone was with them from their past, parent, grandparent, sometimes even a child. And again, you just validate those feelings, and you go back with them and, mm-hmm. and talk with them about their past. That can be a very, very beautiful experience, as I heard you know, in your earlier interview with, with the woman with her mother, mm-hmm. because that's very real. 
but people still have verbal ability, still have cognitive ability. They often will live in the past. Mm-hmm. And yep. And and you know, and you don't say, "Well, they died," and you know what you're talking about. You just go right with them as if they, in the past, were still living. Yep. That, that is a very, very fascinating reality. But you do you do hear many people just in fear trying to recorrect yeah. and and oh, uh, oh yeah change. I understand I understand I had to learn that myself when mm-hmm. I was first a hospice chaplain um, and sometimes you know try to be theological when I should have been personal uh huh you know and another another uh, thing I mentioned is the powerful use of music to the dying person with Alzheimer's mm-hmm. I mean. To any dying person, for that matter, but particularly with a person who has no language, music, as you know, is probably the last thing that goes. And a chaplain friend of mine told me a precious story that a woman was dying on Christmas Eve, and he visited her in the nursing home. And she had no speech. He sat there holding her hand. And finally he said, I began singing Silent Night, Holy Night. And she started to sing with me. And he said, you know, when we came to the words, all is calm, all is bright, she died. Isn't that a great story? Wow. She heard heard the music, and music went with her into the next world. So I do that with some of the people I visit. Uh, I I use music, uh, which I think is a great, great source of help. Yeah, I I think it's just um, the whole death process, you know, it, it saddens me that so many people are so afraid of it because it's it's yep. such an honor to be part of that process. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. It's just it's just so beautiful. Um, yeah. You know, I I I've been able to be with um, several people um, when they passed. My my dad, my mother in law. Um, I I feel like I kind of helped my my aunt pass. Um, my mom, I wasn't physically there um but one one of the things you know she had come to me in dreams prior telling me that i wouldn't Mm. be there and that i needed to speak and um, she wanted to pull the family together and so she needed me gone and um really very interesting and then sure as heck you know she was she was on hospice um for about a month and then ended up getting pneumonia and um i was speaking I I was there kind of to get everything set up, and then I had to go for two speeches. And my family thought I was crazy because I've always been that person who is there. Right. You know, and they couldn't believe. They're like, you're going to have such regrets. I said, I'm not going to have any. I said, I'm so close with Mom. I know this is what she wants. And then um, my daughter, uh, I was figuring I would touch base by phone, but she said, should we Facebook? And actually, I was I was there at all the critical times on video. And oh, it was absolutely incredible. I mean, it, even doing the last rites, we had an eight-hour vigil by video. Wow. It was it was. Um, and I was able to guide family um, so that they could do it, where if I was there, I would have just done it. Um, and right. so my my family got to experience things. And it was oh, like, a, man, she just set this up so beautifully. That's you quite know? a story. Yep. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Very, very But you know, uh, another thing of uh, concern, this is uh, not necessarily guidelines, is that I'm, you know, I, I just wish people would 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 
make their plans while they're able to and not, you know, wait till it's too late or push that off from their children. And, and, and the document that I have used a lot, have you heard of five wishes? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Yep. The, it's, uh, it's, you can get that from uh, a website called www.agingwithdignity.com. They don't want to use the words death even in, 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 in their website, which shows you some of the resistance. But it's a beautiful okay. document. It's, it's, it's not just um, uh, you state the person that you would like to make decisions for you when you can't. That's your health care proxy. The kind of medical treatment you do or don't want, which involves life support. I mean, how you want to be treated while you're dying, any of your wishes. And then an ethical will, where you write out how you want your family to remember you. And, of course, that's one of my earlier books I wrote called Remembering Your Story, which I think is so important for people of any age, particularly older people, to get that done. And I have really worked hard here where I live getting with people in the early stages of Alzheimer's and trying to get them to tell me their story. And it's an incredible experience. And sometimes I have to call on their families to fill in the gaps. But what I'm saying is this document becomes legal for health care. It doesn't become legal for wills or things like that, but it is a legal document. It's very simple. And I know a lot of people do have end-of-life, you know, make end-of-life decisions and have their advanced directives. But this document is so simple, it's only about 10 pages, mm-hmm. that I recommend that. And I've used that with people here, with the family and with people who are in the early stages of Alzheimer's. Say, what do you, what do you really want when that moment comes? And it, I mean, it's scary. I know that. Uh, and yet it gives a sense of peace, too. Because oh, I'm now telling my children that having done this, they never will have to have any concern about what happens when I die. It's all mm-hmm. written out. But unfortunately, only I think I read only 30, 30% of Americans have done that. Yeah, I, I, again, it's, a, it's, it's such a hard thing. I know even like when, mm-hmm. when my dad had brain cancer, my mom with dementia, you know, we tried to get paperwork in order. <clears throat> and... My yep. my dad said, "Oh, we don't have that much." And I said, "You know, every everybody should have powers of attorney. Everybody should have health care directives. You know, this isn't about end of life. This is about living life well, and right. and plan and you know and and stuff. And so, um, in order to ease their mind, what what my husband and I did was we said we committed to do it together. So." And so it wasn't an end of life thing, you know. We were doing it, and we were younger, um, but it, sure. but that we just felt it was really important, and that seemed to kind of ease the burden um, of kind of it's all over. It's you know we're on the downhill slope. Right, I point. understand. And, and people with dementia, you know, talk about end of life um, so much more openly because um, they. That's interesting. You know they they want. Um, they want to have these conversations, just like they want to have the conversation that they've got to mention. They're tired of, you know, everyone saying, "Oh, I lose my keys too." <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. They, they 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 want to have these because they they want they don't want to be a burden. They want things to be smooth. Um, and you know, so I, I think as 
as time progresses, I think we're going to see more and more of our um, major advocates, you know, living with this disease, talking about this and saying, so. you know, we have to plan. And some of them are, are, are writing it down. Some of them are doing legal documents. Some of them are videotaping. But, yes, you know, it all, start, it, all, it all starts with the conversation. Um, but yeah, you have to have someone to listen to you when, when you right. have that conversation. You know, uh, there are some interesting developments in the field of, of, uh, of medicine. Uh, two books I'd love to mention. One is by Atul Gawande called Being Mortal. That book is sweeping the country. It's number one on the New York Times bestseller. And the other book I found was by uh, Angelo Volandes called The Conversation, A Revolutionary Plan for End-of-Life Care. And what is interesting is these doctors are advocating a natural way of dying and advocating conversations with their patients about death and dying. I tried to do that with my, my doctor, and he just said, well, have you, written, have you written out your plans? I said, yeah, here they are. And that was the end of the conversation. He didn't want to talk about it. And They're I understand. so uncomfortable. Yeah, it is funny. Yeah, but they the really doctor... are uncomfortable. That's true. Most doctors, you know, because you know they want to preserve life as long as they can. They don't want to talk about end of life. But those two books, I really recommend. Uh, both of them uh, deal with the, with the subject in a very very vital way. Mm-hmm. But this is an important issue. It really is. Yeah. Which raises uh, which raises Laurie an eth- a bioethical issue, which I'd like to review on. When is when is life going to end? I mean, the question is, is there a way, uh, should, do people live too long today? Or, or is that not a good question? Mm-hmm. Because I had a doctor say to me once who was an agnostic, and we had just been involved with a family who had made no plans for the future for their mother who was dying. And he said to me, he said, Richard, why is it that you, who believe in a better life after this one, want to preserve and continue this lady's life when there was no quality? And that came from a doctor. So that's, mm-hmm. that's a real bioethical issue. Don't you agree? Oh, I, I so agree. You know, and we've had yeah. conversations on this show about okay. um, death and dying a lot. In fact, we just had one of our advocates on dementia chats take her own life through the death and, and um, dignity in oh, really? you know, role, um, which you know not everyone agrees with. Um, but I again, nope. I feel really important that we need to we need to have these conversations and talk about sure. this stuff because um, you know you. We can't get to the crux of of why somebody feels that way, um, right. you know. As well, and you know, we we honor Dina and love her, and um, but miss her deeply. Right. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, that's the path that she chose, and you know, it is something um, that's so critical. You know, one of I the know. things in, in having that conversation with people had asked me, well, what do you think? What what would you want to do? And I'm I'm one where I you know I I'm just a person who I want all my rights you know I want to be able to choose and so I would sure. like that right, but I also said in the same breath, <clears throat> even though my mom was on this journey for thirty years, wouldn't have given up a second. That's right. It's a it's a difficult question. 
Yeah, Hello? and and you yeah. yeah, you think you think that you know what you would do, but you just don't. You don't until you walk until you walk the path. You know, uh you may have seen the New York Times article on Sandra Bem, who was a leading advocate for feminism, very mm-hmm. wonderful lady, and she took her own life. Uh mm-hmm preempted suicide. And then on the other hand, I read recently of an 88-year-old man named Jerome Medali who has in his advanced directive that if he developed dementia, he would refuse nutrition and hydration, which is interesting. If he Mm -hmm. developed dementia, he did not have it at that point. But he's 88 years old. And he said, if I should develop it, I I don't want to have any artificial help, and uh, uh, in fact, I don't even want to be fed or given water, which I thought mm-hmm. was pretty drastic, but, you know, that's the way yep. it felt. So who knows? Yep. Well, I, you know, and I think part of, uh, you know, part of um, some people's beliefs and choices are because of what the image of the disease is. Yeah. Um, isn't really true. You know, everyone pictures, I shouldn't say everyone, but the majority of the population still pictures dementia as this end stage, shell of a body, can't do anything, can't communicate. And, you know, and when I go out and speak, I say, you know, this might be perceived as a shell of a body, but there is a bright, shiny soul still in that body. That's right, bright, shiny soul. And one that is still able to communicate just differently. You know, and so it's up to us to look for the nonverbals and right. and um, you know, and and how many times do we sit next to our companion silently, but we find comfort there? And and why right. can't that be with somebody with dementia? You why know, um, why can't we understand that you know a person in a coma can take everything in, they just can't react, and right. it's no different for a person with dementia at times. You know, uh, yeah, exactly. That's the flip side of the coin because, you know, I learned a new word I hadn't, (laughs) I hadn't known before called dementism, which is prejudice against people with dementia, Mm -hmm. and that's exactly what you're saying is right. That even though these folks may not have verbal skills, there's, as you put, their bright shining soul is still there, and there are ways that you can reach them, you know, through music, and I'm doing that now through art, so. Do you do you want to end that life simply because they have Alzheimer's? I mean, it's an ethical question. Uh, with my mother, you know, she died at 66, and you know, her 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 last days were very very bad. That was mm-hmm. long before she died in 1967. That was long before they have the kinds of drugs they now have for Parkinson's and for dementia. So really, her death was was a blessing. I would not want her to live longer. But on the mm-hmm. other hand, my sister, who was 83, you know, she still had a brightness, as you put it, a bright, shining soul mm-hmm. that her husband could recognize, and I could recognize when I talked to her. I Skyped with her, and there wasn't much language, but I could tell, you know, that she was hearing what I was trying to communicate, That I, that, you know, as we say... As I say, the, the Sanskrit word namaste, the spirit, my spirit meets your spirit. So to say that simply because one is suffering from Alzheimer's, you know, we should say, why don't they kill themselves? Or 
and so forth and so on. But uh, but I would dispute that some. Mm-hmm. Every situation is different, you know. And I cannot, you know, qual- I cannot say what's good for someone else. I just know what's good for myself. Yeah. But I honor those people who make that decision. Because mm-hmm. life, as my doctor said to me, there is a better life beyond this. And if you feel this life is so miserable, I understand. Although I don't yep. necessarily agree. Yep. You accept their decision. and I accept and, their uh, decision. That's all I can and do. It, and it's, yeah, and it's not, you know, and I think that's one of the things dementia is here to teach us is to not judge. You yes. know, um, to to be graceful in in the way that we interact with people, and and that's a really hard thing for some people not to judge. You know, because it's so deeply rooted in belief, oh, and and yet, know. you know, that's not something somebody does lightly. I mean, um, you know, Adina, she talked about it from the moment she got diagnosed. You know that this this was her plan she you know she didn't want to be a burden she had a certain right. quality of life that she wanted and so it wasn't a sporadic act at all right. um you know she discussed it with family and friends <coughs> and right. let her wishes be known i tried to uh, <laughs> you're probably aware there's a movement across the country called death cafes like memory cafes I tried that here. I didn't get much response. I only got, well, I got nine people, which was interesting. And I said to them, they had just read about the young lady who went to Oregon to, to you know, get preempted suicide. How many uh-huh. of you agree with her? And not one of them did. Now, these are all older people, okay? Uh-huh. These are people in their 80s. But they felt that this was wrong. This was morally wrong. And I simply said, hey, that's her decision. We have to honor it whether we accept it for ourselves or think it's right or not we have to honor her decision but i didn't get very far with that so you're you're right you are dealing with it particularly with an older population that i I don't think would sanction any kind of preempted suicide yeah yeah it's 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 very interesting um the whole the whole process yet it's a, mm-hmm. a conversation that is so underground and i think it right. has been for years you know, it's just it's it's bubbling to the top now, like everything else. You know, I know. It's kind of kind of finding finding its way, you know, for people to finally feel comfortable with it. Just like dementia itself is doing. It's it, right. it's not going away. People can't avoid it anymore. So it's something that you know has to be um, discussed. And the more we have these open, kind of gentle, everyday conversations that say, you know, we're not going to judge. We're just going to we're going to hear everybody out. Everybody's voice, yeah. um, you know, is valuable and valued. And, right. um, you know, we just need to be respectful of one another. And, and you know, creating that safe environment sure. to have these conversations. And that's one of the things I think your your book does. It, it allows for safe conversation. Now, right. can you um, explain, you know, I know that this the book is being used and the guidebook is being used with hospice and churches. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, if feedback that you're getting from that? Yeah. I'm getting feedback from uh individuals who, who either email me or I had one lady call me and say what was helpful to her in the, in the every, every, uh, 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 let me see, only 72 pages and there are four, there are four different divisions, but each, each meditation has at the end what I call conversation starter. 
mm-hmm. conversation starter. And then following that is a reflective exercise. The conversation starter is to help a person initiate a conversation with a dying person. And then reflective exercise following that is later on when, when, they, when they pause to think about what happened. And that's the feedback I'm getting. Not so much the content of the book, but those conversation starters. That's what seems to be something that appeals to people. How do I initiate conversation? Because, you know, it is interesting. A lot of times dying people really will not initiate conversation. Sometimes they will, but often, more often than not, they won't. So this book tries to help hospice people and, for that matter, family members to how do you initiate conversations, whether it's about end-of-life issues or your life story or whatever. And that's where I think the book has had some value. In mm-hmm. fact, one of the meditations even suggests questions about the life story, how you go back and help a person who's able to still remember. And a lot of them can, even though the short-term memory is going. A lot of them, long-term memory is better than mine. And they can tell you uh, what have been the meaningful moments of their lives. One of the things that maybe you can help me with is, and maybe you've come across this with your uh, great work, what about someone who has lingering feelings of guilt from the past? Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that? You know, um, that's, a, that's a tough one. Because first of all, mm-hmm. I think people have to recognize that it exists. And I think part right. is going to depend on is it somebody who knows about their guilt? Maybe they were part right. of that that guilt process. Right. So, um, right. you know, and I, I'm just kind of guessing here, but I'm thinking that, you know, for each person it's going to be a little different. Some might be ready to talk. I mean, you know, maybe right. it's some kind of abuse or something that that yeah. they want oh, yeah. to ta- that they want to tackle, and they right. they need forgiveness um, or at least ask for it um, and, right. and apologize for their behavior um, and need to talk to that person directly. Others um, might just need to disclose it to someone else because maybe the other person has passed on or they're not available or, um, or they're not, or, or they're not ready for that face to face because what if? Um, if? So I, I think for all of us, you know, when we're, if we're feeling someone who's uncomfortable with passing, I think it's opening the door to say, right. you know, is there anything in life you've regretted? I know for me right. there has right. been, you know, right. and and so making it a norm because it is a norm. I mean, I don't I don't think there's a person in this world who hasn't done something that they would have said, you know, I, I could have done that better or I could have right. not done that at, at, at all, you know. Yeah, that's um, right. And you know. And, uh, in one of my meditations, I, I uh, talked about Bronnie Ware, who is a nurse, worked in palliative care. She wrote a book on the five common regrets that dying patients have. I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I had the courage to express my feelings. I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. I wish I'd let myself be happier. And sometimes I read that to these folks uh, you know, and say, does this touch you in any way? And you'd be surprised how many will respond. Oh, I would to the first, Take to the first one. I wish I'd had the courage to live my life true to myself, not the life others expected me. And many of them from the older generation said, I was programmed by my parents to be this or that. 
and I never was really the person I wanted to be. I never entered a career that I wanted to career uh, that I wanted to enter. So that that that's fascinating. But dealing with the guilt is really tough because you're right. Um, sometimes they will express it. Sometimes they won't. I had one experience as a hospice volunteer of a man dying with uh, he did not have Alzheimer's, but he had a lot of hostility toward his two sons who apparently had resented the fact that he was in a second marriage. And I enabled, I enabled them to come to see their mm-hmm. father, and there was reconciliation. And that was a beautiful experience. It had nothing to do with Alzheimer's, but it dealt certainly with his guilt, you know, why he was dying. So he died a lot happier death, I think, because of the reconciliation. But it doesn't always happen. You're right. Yeah, and and you know that the whole second marriage thing. I mean, that's a really common, oh yeah, really? common common family dynamic. Mm-hmm. Or um, it might be that uh, someone is perceived that uh, another child was a, the favorite. They yes. were the black sheep. Oh and yeah, that's right. You know, that's, that's right. I think a, a, another huge huge um, step in terms of of how we how we deal and and our perceptions aren't always accurate, but to be able to have those conversations, you know, to, to clear things Um, with my, my mom and her disease, you know, she used to call me her mom and, and my brother would say, doesn't that make you mad? You know? And, but my mom healed her relationship with her mom through her dementia somehow. And, um, you know, she would refer to me as her mother as, Oh, she takes such good care of me. And it's like, what a gift. You know, I'm not exactly right. sure how that happened other than I, I loved her and I cared for her the best that I could, sure. um, kn- knowing that, it, you know, I was by far not perfect in many, many situations and, and I could no have done better, yeah, right. you know. Um, but I, I think for, you know, one of the beauties of, uh, you know, the end of life is is to be able to share those moments of, oh, yeah. of true true authenticity yeah. Um you know, without shame for feelings. And sometimes I think our feelings um, shame us, you know, a man's not supposed to cry or, you know, whatever it might be. And, you know, we just are able to be who we're supposed to be in that moment. And, And there's nothing, I mean, it's just so pure and so, I think, comforting for all sides, no matter how uncomfortable the conversation might be. You know, looking back, um, I think people will feel the authenticity and right. what a big, big step, what a big moment, I know. you know, that that it is. And, um, yeah, it's, I, I love your, your questions for, you know, um, getting the conversation started. And, and I think for yep. many, it's sometimes easier w- with an outside person. Exactly. Um, to to get that conversation going, um, and right. then it's up to them: do they want to take it to the next level? Right. Um, in fact, to, it's to share. sort of fascinating, sort of fascinating phenomenon. I've been in situations where the dying person waits till the families have left the room before they die. Mm-hmm. That's very yep. interesting. I mean, sometimes they want you there, sometimes they don't. So that's where a hospice chaplain or a hospice volunteer has a real role to play in terms of being present with a person in the dying moment, mm-hmm. which reminds me, you know, uh, we have some people here with dement- with Alzheimer's on hospice, and I cannot say anything more positively about the great ministry of, of hospice, but 
they tell me that if a doctor's diagnosis is dementia, Medicare won't pay for hospice. Have you heard that? No, I I don't believe that that's true because my mom. Was I hope on it's hospice. not true. You know the rules have changed, mm-hmm. um, but I, I you know and maybe it could be different states have different things, yeah. um, and it could easily be that a doctor is misinformed, um, okay. or that has the belief which is an awful belief, but uh, I think it exists out there that they don't need it. Exactly. Well, see, we've had three three of our residents who have dementia taken off of hospice. I still visit them, but I can't visit them as a hospice volunteer. I just visit them as a friend. But I feel Mm -hmm. very bad about that because hospice is such a marvelous ministry. Uh, I don't think anybody should be denied, you know. Yeah, my mom was on, yeah, my mom was on it um, in '09, and right. then she was taken off it because she improved. I see. And I and I believe she improved because of all the additional kind of one-on-one connections that she yeah. had, and so she was removed from it. And then um, at the end of her life, um, I, I, and I probably could have squabbled over it earlier, but it was just like I, it. Because the rules have tightened up, and they don't want right. somebody. And, and a person with dementia uh, can utilize hospice. I mean, I, I think immensely on, oh, sure. on so many so many different levels. Um, but again, they're so worried about budgets and timing. So That's right. I kind of I had to fight with my, you know, to get my mom back on it. And they said, yeah. well, you know, she hasn't changed. And I said, you know what, she hasn't changed. But I want her evaluated because I know dang well she's going to meet the criteria. And the funny thing was, is the Friday, uh, on a Friday, the nurse called and said, you know, your mom just has a month left of hospice. She's been out for two months. I don't think she's going to meet the criteria to um, to continue to stay. And on, what was it, on Sunday, she got sick. Oh, my. And. And then, you know, um, by Tuesday morning, I, I think I left town, and uh, she had really taken a turn. They decided it was pneumonia by then, and, you know, and, it, and then it went really quick. But I think, um, you know, she I think she did do better with it. Um, right. But it, you know, I, I, and I also think if she would have lived well, one more day, it would have been 14 years for her in the nursing home, and I don't think she wanted oh that anyway. Yeah. You know, so, well, you know, people still think some people still think hospice is a is a is a sign of death. You know, and of course it is in a way that's true. Is it three months now or six months? Three months is okay. is uh, the last I've heard. Yeah, it, yeah they've okay. changed quite a bit. Yeah. Okay. But they do such a marvelous work, you know, and it's been a privilege to work with them, with the chaplain, the hospice chaplain. And I have done a lot of things together. He he is a musician. And I've been with him in several situations where, you know, if he weren't there, it would have been a lot different kind of dying because it was such a beautiful experience for that person. Uh, I was with a lady who was dying, and he was playing a rendition of the 23rd Psalm, which I'll never forget. And she just began saying the 23rd Psalm, and she had dementia. And she, off, she, off she went into the next world. So, mm-hmm. again, I, I just don't think that's right that people with dementia should be denied hospice because of budgetary issues. But in Pittsburgh, we have 55 hospices in the city of Pittsburgh. Wow. 
So I think it's it, I think it's a matter of straining Medicare. How far are you going to strain Medicare? You know, pay for hospice. That, that's a, that, that raises a whole question of our national health crisis, which is a yep. different situation. Yeah, well, and that's where yeah. I think it's so important for people to volunteer, you know, right. Um, right. because there are there are ways that don't have to cost money where people could participate, both family oh, and sure. friends. Sure. Um, and and I think that that's one of the things that, you know, is being talked about more in terms of giving right. back um, to society. Yeah. And, right. and there are actually people with dementia that are volunteering. You know, really? in their early stages, which is just wow. brilliant. Like one, I can't remember the man's name, um, and I feel awful about that. But he he talked to us one time. He said, um, you know, I know that um, chances are I'm probably going to have to move. And he said, so I want to know where I'm going to live. I want to be part of that choice. So he, he and his wife and his family went out and looked at different communities, and he okay. picked one. And he decided to start volunteering at that one so that he wow. could get to learn routines and people and layout. And it was like, how brilliant is that? And then in the meantime, oh, really? he's being purposeful and giving back. Um, yeah, to, giving you know, to his life, too. Yeah. Exactly. And and so, you know, we've had a lot of conversation around that, you know, planning ahead and being proactive and, and you know, we're Every single one of us is better off than yeah. somebody else. Well, you know, you know, and that gets personal with me because, fortunately, I've been spared uh, dementia, but who knows what's ahead. I'm 86 years old, and, you know, one out of two, they say, after 85. But I'm limited because of spinal stenosis and neuropathy. I don't drive, and I have to use a walker. But what I've discovered is you can you can be a purpose where you are, particularly if you're in a retirement community. Uh -huh. Because where I live now, so many people coming in to what we call independent living have dementia. I'm, I'm uh -huh. it's staggering that that uh, people people in their 70s are staying in their homes that they need home health care. They'll get it. People coming in now are 85 here, at least 85 and older, and I would say at least 40 percent people in so-called independent living have dementia. So there's a ministry right there. I mean, I spent a lot of time with those people who are not even in a memory care unit because they need help. They wander at sundown. They get lost. They, one lady can't even order from a menu. Can you believe that? Mm -hmm. She has, you know, advanced Alzheimer's, but she's an independent living because the family is in denial. They will not uh -huh. admit that their, that their mother needs more than just independent living. So fortunately, they do get some home health to help her because she, you know, she can't exist without that. But she ought yep. to be in memory care. But the family's in denial. <laughs> and, that, so. and that's a huge, huge issue. Oh, my. Huge, huge, really huge issue. And, um, you know, the fear. I, and, you know, I don't know what totally causes that. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I have two two brothers, an older one and a younger one, who were pretty much in denial with my mom. I mean, then they got to the point where they really couldn't be in denial, but, but they weren't right. really around either to participate. And, you know, I think it's just such an emotional um, loss, right. and, and some people just don't want to deal with it. I think others right. um, think if it happened to them, it could happen to me, so I don't want to go exactly. there. Exactly. I yeah, think there's a right. lot lot more of that going on than what oh, yeah. what is what is talked about. 
um, you know, it's just this whole this whole change. And you know, like we talked with a with a, a Jane Lee, you know, we have this mm-hmm. image that our life was perfect before dementia or illness hits, <laughs> and it never was. It never no, was. Sure. Um, no. But we but we kind of put it on a pedestal and we shine it up and we say it was perfect. And, and yet we've all gone through strife and we'll, we'll all continue to have those times in our life um, where, where things don't go as planned. And I, you know, to me, one of the beautiful things and uh, again, wonderful lessons the disease taught me was to really ask during those times, what's, what's my lesson? What am I supposed to learn? Right. You know, this is this I because I, I don't believe any of us is here um, to be drugged through the mud and to yeah. you know have have a poor life. I think it really is about learning our lessons and and living gracefully. And and so that simple question was you know just life changing and life affirming for right. you know dealing with with any struggles. You know, if it was divorce, if it was you know whatever it is. What is my lesson, and and teach me how to handle this? You know, right. teach me how to be a better person, and sure. and then it gets um, us out of the the middle of it, and really, then to me focuses on the greater good of being right. a contributor, you sure. know, to the to the world as a whole. Um, but yeah, there there's so much denial um, from. From so many different angles, like you said, it right. could be the person with dementia, it could be family, it could be the doctors who aren't even giving. You know, it was been in the true. papers all over that aren't even sharing the diagnosis with no, with no. people because they don't know what to do. Or well, that's what why to a lot say. of doctors will not even, you know, write Alzheimer's or dementia on a de- on a death certificate. Mm-hmm. But you know, uh, one of the things we just touched briefly on that. Is one of my concerns from my work with the caregivers and my Alzheimer's support group, which I've done now for six years. It amazes me how that is a beautiful experience because, you know, you never have to have a real program. Sometimes they raise questions and I can answer or I bring in our uh, personal care director who knows a lot more about it than I do. But usually it's just a support group where people can ventilate their feelings and realize they're not alone. But the subject of death has come up. And, you know, one lady said, I, I experienced three deaths with my husband when he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, while he had Alzheimer's, and when he died. And that made me, you know, I really thought about that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it is a death in slow motion. And, and the emotions that, that occur, she was feeling relief and feeling guilty about feeling relief. Uh, yes. Yeah, really. Yeah. I said, look. You went, you went through a lot for seven years with your husband's Alzheimer's. You took care of him at home. That was a tremendous gift that you gave to him. Now you should feel relief that he's gone on, and now you can get on with your life. But she still felt guilt. And, well, you know, I, I think there's guilt, but I, I think there's also a loss of who am I now. Oh, okay. And, and, and yeah. so sometimes oh, yeah. we don't. Sometimes we don't deal with the who am I now, and yeah, so that's a good and, and, and we call it loss, and we don't we right. don't even know what we've lost because I, I know when my dad died, I I went through that, and and people are like, well, what are you going to do now? And I'm like, I I don't have a clue. Well, what do you like to do? I I don't know. I haven't done anything I really like to do for years. <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't on the agenda. It right. wasn't. 
it wasn't part of who I was anymore because yeah. it was so much about meeting other needs, you know, with mom and dad and things. So, sure. um, so I think that that's a, an important. Yeah, that's um, a good. That's a good point because I saw that in my sister. Who am I now? When my mother died, she took care of her day and night for five years, and only went to a nursing home for the last week. And she told me there was a tremendous gap in her life when when, when mom died. Yep. She felt that loss. And who am I now? She still had her career. And she started smoking heavily, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. she got cancer of the lung and died. Oh, jeez, yeah. It's it's tough. I know for me, I I literally went and started taking classes mm-hmm. and started trying to fit, because I, did, I, I didn't know what I liked anymore. So then, it was, so then right. I had this attitude, well, I'm just going to try different stuff. I'm going to try to figure out where I fit again and what I like and... Um, try to work that into into my life um, right. in terms of what brings me peace, what what um, you know, what fills me, and it, it's just it's such an interesting process. And so, yeah. I think for the person who cares, there is not only the death of the person, but the death death of the person they think they were. That's right. You know, yeah. and so it can be kind of that that double loss. With that, right. well, this is. But see, my brother, a- my brother-in-law, who was a veteran of Vietnam, I thought of him yesterday on Memorial Day. He was in Vietnam. He was a colonel in the Vietnam twice, Korea twice, and he considered it his duty to take care of my sister, his wife. And we pled with him to get help. He would not do it until one week before she died. He finally called in hospice, and he said, "This is my duty to take care of my wife until she dies." And um, one month after Pat died, Drew got a major stroke, had a major stroke, and he he lived just a year. So, I mean, you know, I would talk to him often on the phone about, Drew, you've got to get some help for yourself, and he never would. And that's why caregivers, you know, sometimes assume too much and don't take care of themselves, and I see it happening here every day, where a caregiver gives out before the care receiver. And that's sad. Well, so I'm glad you. I think part of um, it is just our verbiage in talking about caregiving versus care partnering, because caregiver says we're we're giving it away. Oh yeah, that's good. Care partnering is much better. And we do have to we do have a right to fill our souls, and you know that allows us to be better care companions and and things there. Um, Richard, we only have like two minutes left. Okay. Um, So. So what else would you like to to say to our audience before we okay. have to sign off here? I guess, the, I guess the last thing I would say is one of the precious gifts that's given to anybody working with hospice or to a family member is to be present at the time of death. And one of my friends is in the book wrote this beautiful poem. It's like a poem. And I'm going to read it, and this will be my last words. I told okay. you once that at my dying bed your face would be the last thing I know. But now I think what I should have said is, take my hand and I can safely go. Oh, that's that, beautiful. That's beautiful. Particularly, just take my hand let me safely go. And I think that's the gift we give, whether we're hospice volunteers or not, to people who are dying. Just take their hands so they can safely go. That is, I'm all choked up on that one. That is I know, beautiful. it's a beautiful, it's in the book, it's a beautiful poem. His name is Ronald Vaughn. And his mother died well, with, and I with think Alzheimer's. The beauty is, is that um, 
if if you've never been with someone who has passed, you don't yep. you don't understand the power of that last touch. I, I mean, it's it's just something else. Um, no now, words. Richard, what's what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Well, they can either. Um, I have a website, but the best way is get they can get a hold of me on email. It's Richard Morgan one two nine two one at Comcast dot net. That's the best way. Or they can call me. Uh, but most of my conversation now comes on email. Some people respond to my blog, but uh, I get a lot of calls. In fact, real quick, I had a call yesterday from a judge in Arlington, Virginia, who's very passionate about Alzheimer's, recording the stories of people with Alzheimer's. So I'm in wonderful. conversation with her. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, that, so, that is fantastic. I don't mean to cut you off. I just want to get right. your phone number out there. 724 864 4205 724-864-4205. And thank you so much, Richard. Bye now. My privilege. Bye. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors. From fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.